So there's this picture hanging on about 25 feet of wall in the Ford House office building a couple of blocks from the Capitol. It's a class photo of the 65th Congress, which took office 100 years ago in 1917. There are two rows of people, one seated, one standing. They're outside on the east front of the Capitol, and you can see some members have cigars and some are wearing hats. What's striking about the photo is that right in the middle, perfectly positioned in front of the Capitol Dome, is a woman. She's the only one among all these old white guys. But she's looking right at the camera, confident and self-possessed. She looks like she belongs. Hey, I'm Reed Wilson, and this is The Hill's History Cast, a podcast on the history and culture of American politics. Today, we're talking about the woman in that photo. Her name was Jeanette Rankin. She was a Republican from Montana, and she was the first woman to win a seat in Congress. This year marks the 100th anniversary of her arrival in Washington. Jeanette Rankin became something of a celebrity back in those days, a century ago. When she ran for office, women could vote in Montana, but women living in other states didn't have the right to vote. She helped change that. This is my colleague, Christina Marcos. She covers the House of Representatives for The Hill, and she's written about Jeanette Rankin's life and legacy over the years. Rankin started her life as a social worker, and she gradually started taking part in the suffragette movement, the group of activists who were trying to get women the right to vote. The movement scored some early wins, especially in Western states. The suffrage movement in the late 1800s had kind of focused on a state-by-state strategy. And you see Western states actually give women the right to vote first. Wyoming's the very first when it comes into the Union in, in uh, 1890, but it had given women the right to vote for years before that when it was a territory. So it's a Western state trend, and then by the early 20th century, you begin to see states that are east of the Mississippi grant women the right to vote. Some of them in local elections, some of them in national. There was a lot of variance. That's Matt Wisniewski, the House of Representatives official historian. He's the guy who put that big photo of Jeanette Rankin and her colleagues on the wall. Women had the right to vote in the Wyoming Territory as early as 1869. Colorado gave women the ballot in 1893. The next year, three women won election to the Colorado State House. Idaho women got the right to vote in 1896. Western states tended to let women vote before eastern states, and there are some theories about why. First, everyone was homesteading, and while the men were out logging or mining, women took care of things like running small towns. And second, women provided actual votes at a time when a lot of these states weren't very populated. There was a a different view of the role of women because of the survival tendencies that folks needed to have, whether they were homesteading or moving into mining towns. Also hope that they just needed more voters. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the the pure politics of it, they needed more voters as well uh, for political strength. That's Stephanie Striak, who runs Emily's List, this big outside group here in D.C. that backs female Democratic candidates running for office. Striak is a Montanan, just like Rankin. After Montana women won the right to vote in 1914, Rankin decided she would actually try to run for Congress herself. The funny thing is, when she ran for office, there were a bunch of suffragettes who worried she would actually set back the cause. They were going state by state, seeking the right for women uh, to vote, and some thought that if you know she ran, uh, they assumed that she would lose, or were fearful that she would lose, and then therefore set back the movement. That's Kathy McMorris-Rogers. She's the chair of the House Republican Conference, and she represents a district in eastern Washington around Spokane. 
Jeanette Rankin actually spent some time in Spokane before she ran for office. And here's Stephanie Shriok again. When she decided to run for Congress, there were a lot of suffragettes who were very opposed to this. This was not a moment of cheering for Jeanette Rankin. They really felt, both in Montana and nationwide, that it would, it would roll back the movement, uh, particularly if she lost. But there, I think there was fear either direction because they just did not think that the country was ready to see a woman in the United States House of Representatives. Back in 1916, Montana elections were run a little differently than they are now. The state had two seats in Congress, but they were both statewide, and everyone ran on one ballot. So the top two vote-getters both won seats. And when Jeanette Rankin ran, she finished second. And unlike today, Congress didn't race back to Washington to begin their new session in January. Think about it. A newly elected member from Montana or California or some other western state would have had to take the train all the way across the country, and that took a long time. Plus, Congress just didn't have the kind of year-round calendar they do now. But Rankin arrived in Washington at a pivotal moment in history. War was raging in Europe, and the United States was about to get involved. She finishes second behind one of the incumbents and, uh, and gets a seat. And she's sworn into the House uh, on April 2nd, uh, 1917. Uh, and it's a pretty dramatic moment because not only is she the the first woman to take the oath, but that night Woodrow Wilson comes to Congress to ask for a declaration of war against Germany. And this is an important part of Rankin's background. She was a committed pacifist. She didn't want the U.S. to go to war. So a few days after being sworn in, Rankin was one of 50 members of the House who voted against declaring war on Germany. It wasn't really typical for a freshman member of Congress to make a big impact in their first term on the job, but Rankin wasn't a typical freshman and she carved out a niche for herself pretty quickly. In fact, she got the House to create a new committee to study this whole question of women's suffrage. She's an advocate for the creation of a committee on women's suffrage. The House creates it in September 1917. They make her the ranking member, the Republican. And a couple months later, in early January 1918, she comes out on the floor and, and leads the debate as the House narrowly passes a, a constitutional amendment giving women the right to vote. Um, like a lot of stuff, it goes over to the Senate and languishes, for that Congress anyway. But then uh, in the following Congress, uh, both the House and the Senate pass it and send it to the states, and it's ratified in 1920 as the 19th Amendment. I love the House guy kind of ragging on the Senate there. Rankin also had a big impact on labor laws. Just after she took office, there was this horrible fire in a copper mine in Butte, Montana, 168 miners died. In Montana, folks, uh, particularly those of us who grew up in Butte, Montana, think about that time period as um, a moment where there was a terrible, terrible mine fire, the Granite Mine Fire in 1917 in, in Butte. Uh, and she really was a huge voice for some significant changes that needed to be made uh, for minor safety, not just in Butte, Montana, but across this country. And you think of some of the labor laws that are in place today, many of those actually stem from some of the debates that happened uh, with the mismanagement of the Granite Mine Fire and how many men we lost in that mine. Rankin's first speech on the floor of the House was actually about the copper mines back home. She also introduced legislation that would later create what became the government's first program to educate and treat young mothers in rural areas. As the first woman in Congress, Rankin was something of a national curiosity. The media didn't really know how to cover a woman in position of power. 
they tended to cover her more in the society pages rather than as a real leader. The press doesn't quite know what to make of her. She's fascinating as kind of an object of curiosity. And so there's as much attention paid to her policy positions as there is the way she dresses or her, her love of moving pictures or, you know, it's, it's, you read the coverage of her and it is so totally different from the male members. And that pattern really persists for that first group of women in Congress for the first 20 years for sure. And it, you still see those kind of things pop up in, in the press in the modern period, you know, when the first woman who wore pants went onto the floor. And she was certainly an icon for women around the country and the growing suffrage movement. She had to hire three extra secretaries just to handle the flow of mail into her office. And it was coming from women around the country. And so what she purposefully did was she kind of embraced this role, not only as a representative of her Western Montana, uh, her Montana district, but for women nationally. You know, she was a symbol, and uh, she understood that and embraced it. Back in Montana, the state legislator decided to redraw district lines. It isn't really clear whether they were trying to get rid of Rankin, but they drew two districts, which put her in the much more Democratic part of the state. So she decided, rather than running in a tough re-election race, she would run for a Senate seat. It was the first time Montanans would directly elect this particular senator. Thomas Walsh had been elected by the legislature just before the 17th Amendment required direct elections. So when he ran for re-election, Rankin decided to challenge him. Rankin came in second in the Republican primary, but she decided to run as a candidate of the National Party, which, kind of ironically, was founded by pro-war socialists. She came in third place in the November elections. So after one term in office, Rankin was out. She didn't even get to vote on the constitutional amendment that would give women the right to vote, which happened in the next Congress. Rankin has this famous line. She said she may be the first woman in Congress, but she wouldn't be the last. And in the next few years, a bunch of women started running for seats. Three women won election in 1920. Another three won seats in 1924, then five in 1926, and nine in 1928. The first Democratic woman to win a seat was Mary Norton from New Jersey. She became the first woman to chair a committee. Actually, she ran four committees during her time in office. The Labor Committee, the House Administration Committee, and panels overseeing the District of Columbia and national memorials. Norton is her own great story. She was clear she didn't want to be treated differently from male members of Congress. When one of them called her a lady, she shot back, I am no lady, I'm a member of Congress, and I'll proceed on that basis. She was very much of the mind that women shouldn't stand out. If a male member held the elevator door open for you, don't accept. Norton also acted as a kind of rules police for early women in Congress. She would sit near the entrance to the House chamber with Frances Bolton, a Republican woman from Ohio. And if another woman entered, they would tell her to take off her hat. Hats weren't allowed for men, and Norton and Bolton wanted the women to follow the same rules. Jeanette Rankin wasn't done with politics, though. She spent the next few decades organizing marches, testifying before Congress, and keeping active in both the women's movement and the anti-war movement. When war started once again in Europe, Rankin ran for her old job in hopes of keeping the U.S. out of another world war. And then in 1940, uh, she runs again on a, a platform to uh, stay out of the war, and uh, she's re-elected to the House, and this is still kind of that isolationist uh, moment in the in the 1930s but the defining 
vote in 1941 for her is is the the war vote. She's the only member of Congress, uh, either chamber, to vote against the war. And that effectively ends her political career. Well, it ended her elected career. In fact, when the Vietnam War broke out, some folks in Montana approached Rankin, who was then in her 80s, about running again on an anti-war platform. Rankin was the only member of Congress to vote against American entry in both World War I and World War II. So now, a century after Rankin became the first woman elected to Congress, about 300 other women have won seats in the House or the Senate. Today, there are 104 women in the House of Representatives and 21 women in the Senate. Both those numbers are all-time highs. Three states, California, Washington, and New Hampshire, are represented by two women in the Senate. That's still not a lot, though, when you consider that 11,000 people have served in Congress in the nation's history. Both Democrats and Republicans say it's often harder to convince a woman to run than it is to convince a man. Kathy McMorris-Rogers said she was asked to run for the seat she holds now, and she finds that's the case for a lot of women. A lot of women still don't imagine themselves running for office, and they, they wait, you know, they wait to be asked, or it's someone else that plants the, the seed. And I've made it a, a, a top priority to take the time to help recruit, to tap some other women on the shoulder and encourage them to consider running for office. Emily's List, the group Stephanie Shriak runs, exists to convince women to get into the game. This year, they say they've heard from like 14,000 women who want to run for local office. So 100 years later, Jeanette Rankin was right. She was the first, but she wasn't the last. And we may be on the brink of a new surge of women running for office. Hey, thanks for listening today. If you want to learn more about Jeanette Rankin, the House Historian's Office has a big feature on her on their website at history.house.gov. And check out our Twitter and Instagram accounts, at Hill History Cast, where we'll post that amazing photo of the members of the 65th Congress with Jeanette Rankin front and center. Our thanks to Stephanie Shriok, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Molly Drinkard, and Alexandra DeLuca, and to House historian Matt Wisniewski. Our producers are Maura Whiteman and Lisa Rule. Christina, thanks for joining me today. I'm Reed Wilson, and this is the Hills History Cast. <laughs>